Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I know it has been quite some time since I was on the air last with all of you, and I sure have missed uh, being on the air since this past Thursday. But at the same time, I know that um, life doesn't revolve around podcasting, even if it's a side hobby. And I'm sure many of you were beginning to wonder, where exactly was Kirk? Well, to tell you the truth, I had not been hiding, um, but I've had other stuff going on, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But the good news is that I'm here, that I'm still uh, committed to this uh, series that we've been discussing, being Andrew Waters's To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and The Race to the Dan. Well, I am pleased to report that uh, we've got a great uh, podcast segment, but then again, we've had all, every podcast segment has been a good one, not just with this series, but with all other series. Thanks to you all, my uh, ardent 101 listeners. But the reason why I say we've got a good one coming up here is perhaps it had, it's been a while since I was on the air last. So I'm sure many of you all were wondering, okay, from where we were almost a week ago, where are we, where are we going to be going a week from uh, now being at this uh, present moment? Well, since we have a lot of ground to cover in a short amount of time, it's probably just best for me to go ahead and start off with our leadoff question. So one thing we can say before it's time for our leadoff question is that uh, Green's forces, along with General Morgan's forces, it is fair to say that the Continental Army is still there. In other words, it hasn't disintegrated. It hasn't fallen apart. We achieved a huge victory at Calpens. Uh, we have been able to stay a step ahead of Cornwallis. We've been able to stay a step ahead of Tarleton with these uh, ford crossings being the uh, crossing of shallow uh, waterway, um, not just streams, but sections of a river. Uh, we've been able to do everything there is to stay a step ahead. And obviously for Nathaniel Green, it would be fair to say that if we let our guards down, it doesn't mean that we're in complete trouble, but if we let our guards down even to the slightest hair, there still is potential for something so bad that it could be make or break. So our first leadoff question for this uh, segment, or podcast segment, I should say, to Andrew Waters's To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and the Race to the Dan is the following. What kind of activity was taking place on February 1st, 1781? Anybody want to take a guess at exactly what kind of activity was taking place? Would it be fair to say that it involves troop movement? Sure. Well, for starters, General Lord Charles Cornwallis's forces arrived at Cowan's Ford prior to dawn. Okay, so when we think of uh, dawn, we think of like sunrise. So, so uh, for General Lord Charles Cornwallis's forces, they have arrived at Cowan's Ford prior to dawn, a.k.a. sunrise, on the morning of February 1st, but uh, crossing this um, Ford, Cowan's Ford, presented challenges. What kind of challenges? How about weather? There had been recent rainstorms, and now, and now there are going to be more rainstorms. I tell you, we 
often take weather for granted. We often assume that, okay, if it rains, that the Continental Army or the British Army is going to be okay and still making their trek from point A to point B. No. Um, we did learn uh, a while back that it had rained incessantly for about 10 or 12 days to the point where uh, the British were delayed in their uh, crossing. Uh, the Americans were affected as well, maybe not in the same way as the British were, but the bottom line is that um, weather, or I should say Mother Nature, does throw curveballs even in times of war where one side will benefit from the other side's um, inability to cross over a, a river or from the other side's inability to, um, to um, strike when they originally intended to do so, but the weather is what uh, prevented them from achieving their ultimate objective. So the British crossing of Cowan's Ford, which is located halfway between Salisbury and Charlotte, was difficult. It wasn't so much because of the weather, folks, but it was difficult due to fighting the Catawba River's currents. You know, currents say a lot about a river. Uh, currents are more about like the, you know, sometimes when I think of a river's current, it could be um, a shift in the wind, but it's also um, attributed to, say, recent rainfall and how uh, water is uh, pushed upward or pushed downward based upon um, other geographical features that might um, pose um, either a threat or pose as some form of haphazard and, um, and either delaying or just simply making an army's um, ability to cross over from point A to point B all the more uh, challenging. So you've got these uh, currents as an issue, and then you've got foggy weather. How can foggy weather impact your ability to cross the ford? Well, it's one thing to have the sky be foggy, but how about limited visibility? So limited visibility is going to make it, um, to me, it's going to make it even worse because you don't know what, you're, what you could be um, walking through um, that you can't see from above. You also don't know what you might be running into. In other words, you might be hitting, running into a shoal from below. You might be you could be um, encountering um, mud uh, to the point where if the current's strong enough, it could, um, it could take you like an undertow from underneath. I mean, you could be literally uh, swept away and nobody could, um, could come to your assistance. So we have to keep in mind that there's no such thing as life jackets during this time. So here we are crossing, here the British are crossing this ford, and it's bad enough that they've got um, intense um, currents then you got foggy weather with limited visibility, but an, an even um, more dangerous surprise lies ahead. Enemy Patriot forces intending to cause deliberate disruption in the midst of the river crossing. So they're not only harassing British troops, but they are firing at them from a distance, hoping that if they become so scared that they will lose all focus and discipline comes apart in the water, um, soldiers are fleeing um, and running for their own lives or swimming for their own lives just to get to shore from the opposite end 
So the bottom line is that the firing the shots from a distance is meant to um, disrupt uh, communication. It's meant to disrupt their focus. It's meant to disrupt their mission altogether. Although Cornwallis's troops in the end did reach the shoreline, would it be fair to say that their troop losses from enemy fire were severe? What do you all think? The answer is yes. How many soldiers do you think got wounded from um, the crossing at Cowan's Ford? I'll give you a number. It's between 30 and 40. The, the answer is 36. 36 troops were wounded, folks. Only four deaths. But think about it. It's one thing to die, but to have 36 men wounded? That's a big deal. How is Cornwallis going to be able to replace those 36 men whom are wounded? And who's to say that any of them would be ready to fight uh, somewhere down the road within a, a couple of weeks? So now he's got to think to himself, how do I go about finding 36 new replacements? So General Morgan's Continental Forces are in retreat towards Salisbury, they marched over 30 miles in rough conditions to avoid a worst-case scenario. And what, to, what, what do you think could have been the worst-case scenario? Think about it. They've marched over 30 miles in rough conditions. To me, the worst-case scenario here was being caught, would have been being caught off guard by the enemy. So, it, to me, I just find it amazing that General Morgan, General Greene, and their forces have been able to cross these uh, rivers... And in some instances, they haven't been in the best of uh, weather circumstances, but they've been able to do it. Is it fair to say that General Green has spent so much time studying these rivers that he knows how they are functioning based upon their seasons? Yes. Has Cornwallis studied the rivers like Green? No. Yes, Cornwallis may have all these large numbers, he may, have, he may have had lots of provisions, but of course he's, he and his forces have burned those wagons out of, to me it was, it was a stupid move, but at the same time, Cornwallis didn't have a, a clear um, strategy on where he was going. Not just so much how to chase the enemy, but how to go about transporting these supply wagons with a whole assortment of provisions. So... The bottom line is that, yes, Morgan and Green have wagons, but they know how to go about transporting stuff, all because of Green's ingenuity in studying these rivers. Yes, you might be a general, but it certainly doesn't hurt to have expertise in surveying uh, everything geographical around you that, will be, um, that can be of uh, use to your advantage, not just short-term, but long-term. Uh, what tavern was located on the primary road en route to Salisbury, uh, 10 miles east of the Catawba River? I know many of you all are thinking, why is, why is it so important that we learn about a tavern here? Well, you know, taverns do more than just provide meals for people, folks. They're more than just coming in and having a hot beverage. Uh, Torrance's Tavern is the answer. I, I didn't expect any of you all to know it, so that's okay. But Torrance's Tavern is where a majority of General Green's militia forces met in terms of pertaining to protection from the enemy, given they were under minimal protection on February 1st. 
to me, this sounds like a little break of, uh, what do you call it, a break in um, overall protection, a break in, um, in rank and file. Uh, it's a little bit of a break in, in anything, but I don't know if I would say Green is getting cocky, folks, or Green is thinking just about himself. You know, we do have to keep in mind that there were uh, some times where generals did some things on their own, and yes, their, their other forces may have been at another um, location, although they weren't far away, but still it didn't mean that anything imminent or unexpected could have occurred that was so grave that it could have meant losing a high-ranking officer. And because of a high-ranking officer's um, passing or being captured, who's to say that the rest of the army could function from below? So... You know, leadership is important, not just from within the inner circle, but leadership is important from how you go about commanding the people below you. So February 1st, 1781 saw the tavern, being Torrance's tavern, become overflowing or overflowed, not just with uh, militiamen, but settlers whom were worried about their personal safety as the British army lied not far away. Colonel Tarleton's cavalry launched an attack on Torrance's tavern, resulting in the deaths of militiamen and innocent civilians. Although Tarleton uh, was not immune, he lost seven men with 20 horses missing. I tell you, it's one thing to um, lose seven men, but to lose 20 horses, I, I would hope that, um, that those militiamen who survived and those... Um, civilians that survived or i should say settlers were able to get access to those horses you know if a man owned a horse it was a big deal it was his livelihood it was his way of getting from point a to point b which was a step above horse and buggy but if anybody stole a man's horse then they were stealing that man's livelihood uh did general green know of what was taking place at Torrance's Tavern? No. Uh, and let's remember, folks, there were no breaking news um, alerts. I mean, getting a dispatch warning itself from one of your courier riders below might as well have been the equivalent of breaking news, but it wasn't... It, we just didn't get a text alert back then, folks, to say, oh, breaking news, there was a... Um, there was an unfortunate incident that occurred at Torrance's Tavern. So General Green does not know of what took place at Torrance's Tavern. Ironically, he was stationed six miles east of the tavern. He was awaiting for militia forces to arrive at a property dwelling belonging to a, a Mr. David Carr. So here he is six miles east of where uh, some um, hostile activity took place, and yet he didn't know about it. But what I find more ironic and hard to believe... And these things did happen, folks. Colonel Tarleton didn't know exactly just how close by General Green was. And that General Green was all by himself. Had Tarleton known of Green's near proximity, and had someone gone out and done a um and done some scouting of the area, knowing what was east of Torrance's tavern? Oh my gosh. We see a general. We see someone who looks like they are of high-ranking status on the Patriot side. 
Is it possible, if it's not General Morgan, that it could possibly be General Green? we got to let Tarleton know. Of course, we don't have walkie-talkies, folks. But think about it. If Tarleton had been smart enough to send some scouts east of Torrance's Tavern, they would have come away with what I would like to say as being the granddaddy of all presents, capturing General Nathaniel Green, the commander of the Southern Continental Army. So had Tarleton known of Green's nearby proximity, he would have seen to it that Green would have gotten captured. And had Green's capture have taken place, it would have been beyond disastrous for the Continental Army. Sure, uh, you know, General Morgan might have been able to have filled in Green's shoes. Sure, you would have had uh, Thomas Sumter, Andrew Pickens, or uh, Francis Marion, or even uh, Colonel Otho Holland Williams. I mean, you would have had a lot of other people who could have filled in for Nathaniel Green. But regardless, it would have been a huge blow. I mean, these other generals or high-ranking officers below all shared the same ideals and principles as Green, but it just would have been a disastrous uh, setback for this uh, Continental Army, or I should say Southern Continental Army. Were Patriot and British forces showing extreme signs of fatigue in early 1781 during the campaign of the Carolinas? Well, think about it, folks. We're into the start of 1781. We're not far from year seven of this uh, conflict between our um, our nemesis being uh, the former um, mother country whom we have declared separation from, England. Would it be fair to say that even um, Americans are growing weary and tired of the war? I mean, they want independence from England, but many in Congress, it would be fair to say, are growing weary and tired because, for one, they, don't they know that they don't have enough they know that they could be facing a complete shortage of money or a complete scarcity where there's hardly any, any money left to fund this war. Of course, we do have to keep in mind that France has been the huge supplier of provisions. Yes, we've had some in Congress whom are wealthy enough that they've been able to use whatever assets they've had uh, for some time to be able to fund the war, but money doesn't last forever. And support can't always last forever. Public support, that is. I mean, considering here we are fighting a war with the mother country where not everyone's 100% uh, um, in support of this war. We've, got a, we've obviously got our share of people who are uh, loyalists, loyal to the crown. We've got our people whom, do, whom want complete separation from England and who want their own independent nation, and then we've got those who are neutral, who can't make up their own minds. So we, we don't have, even in early 1781, there is still, there still is um, a lack of um, full 100% unity, but, it, but people are beginning to say to themselves, how can this war eventually come to an end where we, as Americans, will emerge away as victors and defeat the mightiest empire in the world? So, yes, um, both Patriot and British forces did show extreme signs of fatigue in early 1781 during the campaign in the Carolinas. Soldiers preach, preach side were showing exhaustion, hunger, 
But on the British side, fatigue led to uncontrolled anger. Given over a two-week span, they had endured defeat at Cowpens, including losing a portion of their army to the enemy, and and saw uh, leadership from the higher end, being that of Cornwallis and other officers, agreeing to destroy a majority of the provisions, given that the Carolina wilderness had posed so many obstacles. Obstacles that they were not prepared for, obstacles that were taken for granted, obstacles that um, where there was not uh, unity on how to um, go about transporting these supply wagons so that they would not fall into enemy hands. Yes, one could say, all right, burning the wagons, they don't fall into enemy hands, but you've got an army to feed. You've got an army to, to provide for. How are you going to do all this long term if you destroy 80 or 90 percent of your wagons? It's just not sound thinking, folks. February 2nd of 1781, Continental Forces under the command of Daniel Morgan and John Howard arrived into Salisbury, North Carolina around the same time in the morning as General Greene had done. General Cornwallis's troops, folks are two days behind from the banks of the Catawba River. So here we go, folks. Green, Corn, and um, Morgan, uh, Morgan and Howard, Green, but even other officers who are commanding units like uh, Lieutenant Colonel William Washington with cavalry forces, he's a step ahead. I mean, everybody in the uh, Continental side is pretty much at least one step ahead of Cornwallis and Tarleton because they've done their homework. They, they, they seem to know all these ins and outs. They're doing things to some degree, maybe conventionally, but they're also doing things a little irregular by doing things unconventional that have uh, dragged uh, the conflict um, to greater heights in the Carolinas to where the British have not been able to achieve the slam-dunk victories that they had uh, hoped for. So um, the next question I'm going to ask you all is this. What barbaric practice did British troops under Cornwallis's command resort to while marching en route to Salisbury between February 2nd and 3rd? Of course, when we think of barbaric, folks, we think of evil. Barbaric is um, doing things irrational, uh, but doing things that um, are just simply inhumane. So the barbaric practice that British troops under General Cornwallis's command ended up resorting to um, arson. Can you believe that, folks? Arson. Okay, when we think of arson we think of uh, setting a home on fire that's not pleasant but it happened it happened during the american revolutionary war uh, folks uh, british soldiers uh, most notably in the southern campaign were known to uh, destroy people's homes because at this point in the game they they don't have a um, clear identity or focus on where it is they're going and, it, and the majority of their supply wagons are just are, are gone. So if the majority of your supply wagons are gone, when you consider food, rum, gin, um, other, and then other essential provisions like you know blankets and 
you name it, the whole nine yards, what are you going to resort to? You're going to resort to doing things that are, um, are what we call, are best described as uh, the undoing sort. And that is holding a family hostage, or even worse, if the family doesn't give in to your demands. And in some instances, British soldiers were known to uh, shoot at family members. If you all remember in the movie The Patriot, how Mel Gibson, who played a, um, a colonel, how his family um, lost um, one of their children because of a British, um, Brit the British destroying the, um, the property. And if I'm not mistaken, you all remember a scene in that movie uh, towards the latter part where um, a church was set ablaze with members of the congregation who sadly lost their life. So sadly, um, we're this um, these acts of barbarism are almost like the equivalent of I can't say if it's the equivalent of eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth, but there are some similarities to it. So Cornwallis is losing control of his army. So yes. His um, troops, the troops under his command, have resorted to arson, burning properties, homes of innocent civilians, all in part because of the current, given the current state wasn't great, because British leadership had already um, decided to set ablaze many of their supply wagons, which hindered access to acquiring provisions from within, meaning now British troops have gone about plundering anything around them resulting in greater conflict encounters amongst the general public, being the communities. So how would you like it if uh, you have a handful of British soldiers coming onto your property, knocking down a door, and holding you and your family hostage against your own will, all because they are lacking provisions, and they are taking their anger out on you all, whether you are patriots or neutral, they're taking their anger out. These are scary times, folks. War can make people do things that are unbecoming, even if it means plundering communities. Uh, that is, uh, destroying properties, setting properties on fire. Cornwallis did not approve of the looting, plundering, and arson activities, but <laughs> did he do anything to stop it? No because he had already lost a certain degree of control from within. And as I've said before, and I'd say it again, it didn't help that the burning of the supply wagons, it didn't help that burning those supply wagons, it didn't make things better, it just made them worse. And if you burned your supply wagons, do you think the troops below you are going to respect you and others from within the inner circle? No. No, because all they are thinking about is themselves. So right now, and it might stay this way for Cornwallis. It is I, it's his troops are now in a state of I, me, myself. For General Green, General Morgan, and other uh, leaders in the Continental Army, it is still us, we, ourselves. And that's the big difference maker, folks. If you have an army that's about I, me, myself, good luck getting anywhere. February 3rd, 1781, Cornwallis's troops arrived into Salisbury around midday. Uh, but the day before, uh, February 2nd, General Morgan's, General Morgan's forces, forces were already seven miles north 
to the trading ford, the trading ford being a key crossing section of the Adkin River. Um, when I, whenever I think of Salisbury, North Carolina, I think of uh, Food Lion. Um, Food Lion as its um, headquarters is stationed in Salisbury. I know there's uh, Catawba College right outside of Salisbury. But uh, had Salisbury, North Carolina, prior to and during the Revolutionary War, become a vital town center in western North Carolina? Do any of you all want to take a guess, guess at that? Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, Salisbury was a, um, prior to and during the war, it had become a vital town center. This was largely due to where it was located along the Great Wagon Road. And many travelers viewed Salisbury as the first key trading center after crossing the Appalachians. Prior to the war, um, what I found interesting is that Salisbury was home to a shoe facility, it was home to a prison, home to a hospital, and an armory. So if you were traveling along the Great Wagon Road, where do you think in North Carolina, where would you want to stop first if you had to stop before going into South Carolina? And if your final destination is what we now know as Augusta, Georgia, where this uh, Great Wagon Road ended, yeah, you're going to want to stop in Salisbury, North Carolina first. That probably would have been a great place to have resupplied on provisions. Uh, it would have been a great uh, stopping point for uh, other various reasons. Generals Morgan and Green were no strangers to Salisbury, considering both men passed through the town in late 1780 before arriving into Charlotte. Now, prior to February 3rd, when Cornwallis's forces did arrive into Salisbury, General Green prevailed in overseeing to it that provisions were removed um, out of Salisbury to where they did not fall into enemy hands. I'll tell you, another good, brilliant move on the general's part. And, um, you know, the greater you, the greater you see an opportunity for uh, moving stuff out of um uh, that could be vulnerable to getting into the hands of an enemy, the better. Hang tight here for just a moment. Had Generals Green, Morgan, and the Southern Continental Army made it safely across the Yadkin River come the evening of February 3rd? Yes. But some of their supply wagons got left behind. Now, that seems like a bad thing to me, but there's a reason why some of the supply wagons got left behind. For protection purposes, where roughly 150 militia troops stood guard. They stood guard watching, or I should say patrolling, British movement. So maybe keeping some of the um, supply wagons behind was meant to serve as a decoy. In other words, okay, if Cornwallis's troops... Stumble upon these, stumble upon the small number of uh, supply wagons that they're going to be inclined to think that other supply wagons are nearby, only to be led on a uh, wild chase where there were no other supply wagons besides the three or four they would have encountered. So there again, it could be fair to say that. Um, that the, for those 150 militia troops, or what we would refer to as pickets or guardsmen, they were left behind as a means of setting up a trap. General Morgan in early February became very ill. 
Man, that's, uh, that's tough. So how are we going to respond? Uh, General Green was forced to make adjustments where he requested Andrew Pickens in commanding the troop force to oversee harassing Cornwallis's rear after Calpins. Andrew Pickens was promoted to Brigadier General in South Carolina Militia by Governor John Rutledge. When one becomes a Brigadier General, how many stars do they have? One. So that's the basic entry uh, level ranking for general status before ultimately becoming chief general like that of George Washington and Nathaniel Green. February 5th, General Green orders to have as many provisions loaded on wagons where the eventual destination became Guilford Courthouse. Does anybody know um, where Guilford Courthouse is located in uh, North Carolina? Is it located um, north of Salisbury or is it located uh, west of Salisbury? It's uh, north of Salisbury. It's not far from uh, Greensboro. There is a college uh, known as Guilford College, which isn't far from Guilford Courthouse. But Guilford Courthouse became the seat of Guilford County, which got established by the North Carolina General Assembly in 1770, the same year as that infamous Boston Massacre occurred on March 5th of 1770. Guilford uh, Courthouse was named for Frederick North, who was the Earl of Guilford, and by the time 1781 um, rolls around, um, he is um, Frederick North is the actual is England's actual prime minister. Now, what I found interesting about Guilford County is that it's in between Orange County to the east and Rowan County to the west. Uh, Gil Guilford uh, Courthouse is located not far from Hillsborough, where Continental Army's previous headquarters was located. So I'm beginning to wonder, too, if perhaps Guilford Courthouse, given that it's on the outskirts of Greensboro, is not too far from the North Carolina-Virginia line. Uh, I do know that, yes, uh, Greensboro is not far from uh, Danville, Virginia. Uh, for those of you who don't know where Danville is, that's located in uh, Virginia's south side. And uh, I know that um, one of the main um, roadways to get, say, from Danville to Greensboro, Greensboro is taking U.S. 29. Uh, so whenever you think of uh, Greensboro, just think of, um, like, say, U.S. 29, or you can think of other uh, highways, like interstate highways, like 85, for example. But just know that Greensboro is not far from the North Carolina-Virginia line. Um, what had General Morgan done that was considered improbable? Okay, the guy is, you know, the guy's ill. I mean, he's, but he's not down. He's, he hasn't surrendered. He's still going to um, do whatever he can to ensure that the men whom are serving below him are not um, caught off guard or that they don't end up um, being uh, put in a trap where they uh, became um, prisoners of war. General Morgan, along with his forces, marched 47 miles to Gil Guilford Courthouse in 48 hours. 47 miles in 48 hours, folks, that's a lot of mileage to cross to, or to be um, undertaking in 48 hours, but they did it, and they arrived on the evening of February 6th. 
And let me ask you this, was the weather good or was it bad? The weather was bad. It was rainy. And yes, Morgan was not in good shape, but yet he did it. And it would probably be fair to say that because Morgan did it, even in the most um, dire of circumstances, that even his forces are more than one step ahead of Cornwallis's. General Greene's forces stayed along the Adkin River where they went about monitoring Cornwallis's movements. Was Nathaniel Greene's destination Guilford Courthouse? Yes. But what kind of a route was he going to take to get there? Were there multiple options for getting uh, to Guilford Courthouse based upon where his um, troop forces were stationed along the Adkin River? Yes. Green's forces are going to take a northern route. The northern route would, by taking this northern route, it was the, the intention was to offset Cornwallis with the overall intention of fighting the British on a battlefield. Okay, so I'm going to take a different course, but it's all about deceiving you. But somewhere down the road, I might have what it takes to actually lead you to lead to square off against you being Cornwallis and the British on an actual battlefield. I've been, I've been, um, how do you say, if I'm Nathaniel Green, I've been trying to delay this as much as possible because I'm very, very concerned about keeping my army intact. But if we are to go head to toe on an actual battlefield, I've got to make sure that I have enough men for whatever number of men I'm going up against. Whereabouts did uh, General Green uh, go about setting up encampment from February 6th to the 7th? Green's forces were stationed at a place called Abbott's Creek, located in present-day Davidson County, now, I should point out that uh, Davidson County is named after a fellow um, officer by the name of William Davidson, for whom Davidson College is named after. So anytime you hear of, a, um, of an American Revolutionary War officer by the last name of Davidson, think of North Carolina, and you think of Davidson uh, University, which is located outside of Charlotte. So Abbott's Creek um, was located, um, the Abbott's Creek location, rather, I should say, allowed for General Green to observe Cornwallis's activity movements. It seems like Green is very infatuated with um, monitoring Cornwallis. But remember, for every crossing, for every relocation, his forces go. He's got to be on the offensive. What do I mean by the offensive? He's got to keep monitoring where Cornwallis is going next. He can't assume anything. He can't just sit back and say, well, okay, I made the crossing over here. I don't have to worry about anything. Cornwallis isn't stupid. <laughs> yeah, Cornwallis could be a day or two behind, but if you give him enough time, he and his forces will make their way into your all's vicinity. And if his forces can muster up enough strength, they can engage in an ambush. They could 
wheel right or wheel left to where if the majority of Green's forces are in the middle in terms of encampment, they'll get obliterated. So all it takes is one mistake, one mistake, and this is all, this is all over with. Although Cornwallis's mission was to ultimately beat Green by somehow getting to Guilford Courthouse first, his march north meant greater likelihood of going further away from what, folks? Supply lines. So if Cornwallis is marching north into this area of what we now know as the North Carolina-Virginia line, where was his original supply line? Was it in North Carolina or in South Carolina? It was in South Carolina, folks. And where were the British headquarters? In Charleston. From Charleston to uh, Guilford Courthouse, folks, that's a long ways. We could be looking at at least a two-weeks journey just to get back to Charleston. Or longer, depending on even what the weather does. So the bottom line is that the further that Cornwallis is and his troops are getting away from their main supply lines, what also are they going to be pressed for uh, not being able to acquire? They're not going to be able to acquire enough troop reinforcements. Who's to say that, okay, if Cornwallis has 1,500 men, we're going to use this hypothetically, if he's got 1,500 men um, making their way northward, is it fair to say that some of those 1,500 men might not make it? Perhaps. They might not make it because of disease. They might not make it because of, um, what do you call it, internal uh, issues from within uh, in terms of um, going against the general's orders. But, of course, even Cornwallis can't uh, is having a hard time maintaining discipline. So there's the further they get away from their supply lines, folks, they are getting into... Um, deeper unknown territory to where turning around isn't going to happen, or if it does happen, it's going to become um, an even more daunting game. So February 7th, General Green reconnects with a whole assortment of other officers from Isaac Yugi, Thaddeus Kajusko, Colonel Henry Lee, Colonel Otho Holland Williams, uh, just to name a few, but he's reconnected with a number of these other officers, which is great. The good news is that, okay, yes, he's connected with other, reconnected with other officers and with their, um, what do you call it, with their uh, troop numbers. The good news is that Nathaniel Green has an army of 2,036 men. But there is bad news to report, folks. Out of the 2,036 men, only 1,426 were fully reliable, being continental, being of the continental regular rank. The militia's numbers continued to have fluctuation, constant comings and goings. Only 200 men from around Guilford Courthouse joined Green's army, whereas the remaining remnants came from Andrew Pickens's um, division at Calpens. So that means that pretty much means this, folks. 1,426. If you have only 1,426 out of 2,036 that are um, reliable, it's fair to say that that means you've got about 590 men whom are unable to go, whom are unable to uh, to fight. 
at, at, at best. You've got 590 men whom are not able to fight. That mean you're just shy of 600. And those men could be out of action due to having um, endured disease or other um, internal um, issues. Many of them, you know, coming and going, militia rank, needing to go back home and tend to their farms and families. So it's a lot of... Um, a lot of highs, a lot of lows, a lot of ups and downs at any moment. But for whatever number of troops Nathaniel Green has, he's got to find a way to keep them in line, to keep them focused. I mean, there is other good news I can tell you here is that Nathaniel Green did request uh, reinforcements from General Baron von Steuben uh, in Virginia. Von Steuben has uh, given Green um, request uh, or approval, that is, for reinforcements. However, the re these reinforcements are facing setbacks for various delays, and one of them is that they have not left Virginia as of yet. And a good, and those whom are already at Guilford Courthouse, what also could they be lacking in terms of not being able to fight? A good number of the men at Guilford Courthouse did not have proper arms. In other words, they didn't have uh, muskets, rifles. They didn't even have adequate clothing. So we have to remember that some of these soldiers are probably marching and don't even have shoes fully covering their toes. In other words, they're marching with half shoes. I'm not uh, joking, folks, but even at Trenton in December of 1776, there were men marching um, after having crossed Delaware River, and, and many of them were experiencing frostbite. They didn't have enough. They were having to use whatever blankets they could to cover their feet because they didn't have adequate shoes. So we can't take provisions for granted, folks. Um, it's, it's a miracle we even won this war, but had it not been for the French supplying us with so many provisions early on, and just in general, I don't know how we could have done it, folks. There's no way. We just have to keep in mind that it was one thing to have declared separation from England, but remember all the other commodities and uh, valuable resources we were giving up, giving, we really risked giving up. Think about it in London, for example, real quick. You've got a greater population in London, England than you do in Williamsburg, Virginia, so you're going to have far more shoe shops in London, England than you are in Williamsburg because you've got a greater population of people who can work in assembly lines, who can produce mass quantity of shoes, can acquire better access of um, different kinds of leather that can be brought over to the colonies that people in the colonies simply cannot find. And once you declare your separation, are you still going to be allowed to get the same good quality of leather from England prior to relations having turned sour? The answer is no. So we just need to keep in mind that it may have been one thing for us to have had access to shoes during the Revolutionary War, but they are. But the leather was not the same kind of quality that had been um, imported over to us from England. Um, February 8th, General Green's uh, troop forces left Abbott's Creek and marched straight to Guilford Courthouse. Given Cornwallis's troops were already stationed three miles along the east side of the Yadkin River. All right. For those of you who are retired from the military or who are still in the military and have had a chance to listen to uh, my podcasts, 
um, you will be glad that I'm mentioning about this. What is a council of war? Well, we all know what a council is. Usually that refers to a meeting of people. But a council of a war is, um, yes, it's a meeting or a series of meetings involving an army's lead commander being a, the head general, including officers of high-rank status just below chief commander. These meetings or uh, councils involve decision-making that decision-making on a variety of things, but like one, for example, it could dictate how an army should pull out if coming under heavy enemy fire to whether or not a battle should occur based upon overall troop numbers. Soldiers ready to fight versus opposition numbers, including an army's general state, the well-being. All of these things that have to be taken into consideration and on February 9th of 1781, General Green uh, called for a council of war. And this had to do with whether to uh, send troops into battle. In other words, somewhere down the road, we probably may feel that it's necessary to engage in a traditional European linear warfare style battle. The bigger question is, will we have enough men to do it? And if we do have enough men, even if, if it may not be the exact number as the British have, are we going to know to uh, fall back? Are we going to know when to retreat? Are we going to know um, how to uh, secure um, everyone from behind and up front to where when the retreat happens, we won't lose so many people or people won't desert. Or people won't run, flee, panic like they've never seen this before. In other words, even if we go into battle and we lose, will we still will I still have an army? Will I still have an army that can function in some capacity or another? Because if I don't end up with an army that can't function, then then not only have I lost the army, but I've lost the cause as well. These are the questions that are um, that Nathaniel Green is wrestling with. Uh, despite not having the same troop level numbers as Cornwallis currently had, General Green's primary focus centered upon preserving the greater army. Smart move, considering that he had to do a lot of reflecting on his past failures. Five years earlier, in November of 1776, Fort Washington, New York, during that infamous New York debacle uh, campaign, Nathaniel Green had held on to Fort Washington much longer than necessary, and it resulted in his losing 3,000 uh, soldiers being forced to surrender to the enemy. It was uh, a time in Nathaniel Green's life as well as in George Washington's where both men were encountering lots of trial and errors along with other um, officers. So Nathaniel Green knew going forward that that he could not afford to make a mistake like that. It's one thing to maybe lose 50 soldiers, and yes, that's a high number, but you lose 3,000, you're not going to be able to get those 3,000 men back overnight. That's just not possible. Around February 9th, General Green wrote letters to General Washington, whom was stationed well north of New York, along with um, a fellow um, man whom was North Carolina's governor, and the county is named after him. Uh, the governor's name was Abner Nash. How ironic that my wife uh, was born in Nash County, North Carolina, in Rocky Mount. 
So whenever you think of Nash County, think of Rocky Mount. Uh, but yes, uh, General Green wrote to Abner Nash, or Governor Abner Nash, these letters to Governor Nash as well as to General Washington explained the decision he made pertaining to the retreat. But doing so where objective, or the objective itself, centered upon Cornwallis's troop forces coming further north into the North Carolina-Virginia line, meaning the British would become more isolated from, the main, from their main supply center posts. Now, of course, when I mentioned earlier main supply center posts, like one of them being in Charleston, South Carolina, what about in North Carolina? Would it be fair to say that the British could have had access to a main supply center in Salisbury? Think about it. Salisbury was where all the comings and goings were for people traveling along the Great Wagon Road, most notably prior to um, this war. But the British, by going further north, into what we now know as the North Carolina-Virginia line, they are going to be, they they would be much closer to Salisbury in terms of a post than they would have to Charleston, South Carolina. But by, but by going further north into the North Carolina-Virginia line, they are becoming further away from Salisbury. So now now they would run the risk of facing greater obstacles behind recruiting new trip new troops, and knowing their true mission given how far they had gone in pursuing an enemy whose chess maneuvers constantly remained one to two steps ahead, despite being outnumbered regarding overall troop size, might have been a retreat, but maintaining numbers was the greatest of all precedents for General Green, as well as for General Morgan and the other officers. So yes, they were one to two steps ahead. Yes, they may not have had the same troop size. Yes, they were outnumbered. But what was paying off for them, folks? These retreats allowed them to keep their armies intact. Had they not been on the retreat constantly, they would have been caught. This um, cause or this um, fight for independence might have become extinguished. So it's one thing to be on the offensive, but you got to stay on the offensive. And these chess, these games of chess are allowing Nathaniel Green and General Daniel Morgan and other um, officers to prove to the British that, look, we, we know how to fight, and we may not have your all's numbers, but we do have tricks up our sleeves that will keep you all guessing, that will keep you all constantly on the run. But being on, on the run where you all don't know where your ending point's going to be. We may know where the end point will be at some point, but we will always be a step ahead of you. So when I'm on the air again next time, folks, uh, we are going to um, be getting into, um, into March of 1781 with the possibility that the next time I'm on the air that we will be talking about uh, what will ensue at Guilford Courthouse around mid-March of 1781. Thank you for your time as always, and I was definitely glad to be back on the air because I did miss you all, but I want to thank you all for being such great listeners because if it weren't for you guys, I don't know where I would be, and it is hard to believe that it was two years ago this month, on this date, I began podcasting. And for those of you who have been with me this whole time, it's been a great ride, but the ride doesn't stop. 
the ride keeps going, the missions keep going, the stories keep going, and thanks to you all, we've got many more good stuff uh, that will lie ahead. So I look forward to being back on the air with you all next time, and wherever you all may be, continue to stay safe, and thank you once again.